All right, good morning, everybody. Um, I am really excited for you all to be here and to um, get in on this amazing conversation. This is um, going to be an amazing conversation with some really amazing people that I have the honor to share this amazing platform with. Um, this is the Future Proofing in Diversity panel, um, and it's going to be a really good one. Um, I want to first introduce myself. I am Christina Granville, AKA or affectionately known as Miss Basketball. I am a NBA 2K League host of the AT&T 5G Game Day Show. Also, I am a professor at Morris Brown College. I teach intro to team management in esports. Um, and I have worked with community um, since the very beginning as one of the first African-American females to be a sportscaster for the HBCU Esports League. So I am very honored to share this stage with the people who gave me my first start in esports, so um, I'm really excited. What I would love to do is to go ahead and introduce my amazing panel. So um, I will start off with Miss Erin Ashley Simon. Hi everyone, my name is Erin Ashley Simon. I'm a broadcaster in the gaming entertainment space. I'm also the co-owner and chief culture officer at the gaming organization called Xset. I do a lot of D&I work in the gaming space and I also work with all different publishers for B2B, B2C, and marketing and brand work. Everyone from Riot Games to Activision Blizzard to EA to 2K and so forth. Oh, I love it. Give it up for Aaron. <laughs> All right, next is this person. He gave me my first start in esports, Mr. Ryan Johnson. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Ryan Johnson, the founder and CEO of Community Media. Our mission is around future-proofing diversity in the esports and video game industry by building the largest collection of gaming-based content around competitions, um, custom, and then also, of course, career opportunities as well. Um, our claim to fame within community media is that a few years ago, we created the first esports league in North America for historically black colleges and universities, um, and since then have grown the league from two schools to about 35 different institutions. Um, and working with major brands like Verizon, Discover, Nike, Hot Pockets, and Mountain Dew. Um, and one of the things I'm most excited about is that in last year, 2022, we provided over a million dollars worth of scholarships to students that compete within our league as well. Um, so again, just very excited to be here at my first South by Southwest um, and just talk about all the things that, you know, gaming, esports, and uh, diversity, and really just how we move this needle forward. Love that. All right, last and certainly not least is Mr. Dante Simpson. Thank you very much. Uh, as mentioned, my name is Dante Simpson. I am the co-founder of eSpat TV and Studios. Um, I often say, and I've said to everybody on the panel, uh, a lot of you probably have no idea who I am, but hopefully by the end of this, uh, you're very familiar with my work uh, and, and the work of our team. Uh, we like to call ourselves the premium content studio within the gaming space from a gaming lens. Um, so we work around the worlds of entertainment, um, and we've worked with uh, some of the biggest publishers uh, globally, whether it's from the riots of the world uh, to Epic to Activision Blizzard. Um, and, uh, and EA Sports. So I'm um, happy to share our journey as we look to pave ground for creatives, um, producers, directors that create premium content um, from a culture and color perspective um, and bringing that to the gaming space. So glad to tell you about what we're doing at Eastbat TV and uh, look forward to this conversation. I love that. Give it up for Dante. 
So this panel is really about just dissecting um, diversity in gaming and figuring out how can we move the culture forward. Um, how many of you guys play video games in here? She's like, I'm thinking about it. Do I play Candy Crush? I'm not sure. <laughs> She's like, okay, it's me, it's me, it's me. Uh, um, how many of you guys know the esports industry or have been around or have heard about the esports industry? Love that, love that. Basically everybody in here. Perfect. So for me, I didn't realize what the esports industry was until about maybe three or four years ago. And what I've learned while being in the industry is that so many people of color influence the culture of esports. And what I've also learned is that 83% of African American millennials play video games and are in that space, but only 4% make up the gaming industry. That is a huge problem. So today we wanna just dive into how can we make that better? What do we need to do? Um, what does the future look like for gaming when it comes to diversity? And um, a roadmap maybe that we can kind of form, formulate to make sure that we are adding more diversity in the game of esports. So my first question is for, well, it's gonna be for all the panels. So when we think about esports, right, and we think about you know, the different things that we've been able to see, I know we have come a long way, um, but we still have a, a, a ways to go. What are your perspectives on the history of gaming and the role that black culture, specifically in shaping the evolution in growth over time means to you? Aaron, let's go Aaron. <laughs> well, uh, there's, there's two sides of this, right? Um, one, if you all know or don't know, um, black engineers have always been a part of the video game world since mm -hmm. the beginning. Um, Jerry Lawson helped to create the cartridge that helped to revolutionize video game playing, you know, because yeah. as many of you guys know, originally, the games were installed in the consoles itself, yeah. and then that new technology allowed for you to have uh, more storage in terms of being able to game. Uh, also, if we look at, uh, this is something I always love to talk about, if we look at the history of gaming, it coincides with the history of hip hop, and they both came up around the same time. And so when we look at the black community more specifically, uh, we were always embracing video games. You know, one of the most iconic and notable verses was from Biggie, uh, talking about the Sega Genesis, right? And so that, in the sense of video games, that's always been a part of our culture, it's always been a part of our DNA. It also was one of the things that helped to keep youth out of the streets yeah. uh, in addition to being a musician or being an athlete. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that the black community, black culture, as well as black engineers have always been a part of gaming. I think what we're starting to see differently now is the educational side of it, understanding that video games can be help lead you into a more fruitful career and mm -hmm. opportunities um, to help increase you know, generational wealth and also increase opportunities for yourself. But we've been there since the beginning. Yeah. I love that. Ryan? Yeah, no, um, literally just echoing what Aaron mentioned, at least the history from our perspective. Um, just to give some a little bit of context about myself. Um, when we started Community, both me and my business partner, Chris P.A., were HBCU alumni. Um, for those unfamiliar, historically black colleges and universities. So for us, 
the history that kind of led to where we are now is that we knew, like growing up, my friends, my cousins, in college, we had 2K tournaments in the dorm room, but when we looked at the industry of gaming, we saw no one professional working at any of the organizations in any type of leadership role, or specifically competing at any of the major large-scale tournaments. So it's like, how do we create an ecosystem or a platform, or really understand first and foremost why there is this gap? And so for us, um, we're based in Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia was one of the first five states in North America to actually have varsity esports at the high school level. So essentially what that means is that literally students in Georgia, they compete in high school esports. They can earn full-time scholarships to go to any college or university that has an esports or gaming program. Um, as we looked throughout the landscape, at the time there were over 250 predominantly white institutions or your traditional state colleges and universities that had gaming programs, scholarships, or varsity teams. At the time, there were zero HBCUs in North America that had any gaming programs on their campuses. So for us, we then looked to see like, well, why are there no gaming, um, no gaming um, programs? And a lot of it was due to lack of access and lack of economic opportunity. And I mean that because Historically, to the Biggie reference, we play on consoles, right? Mm -hmm. PlayStation, Nintendo, Xbox. A lot of the gaming industry is deemed around gaming PCs. Mm -hmm. The lack thereof is about a $1,500 to $2,000 difference that really has eliminated people of color from competing in the highest levels of gaming and then also in the esports space. So as we've launched Community, we've been very intentional to start with games that were familiar to our community, but more importantly, start on consoles. So I think for us, the history was like, how do we build a successful business in a space where we have historically not shown up? And for us, it was first understanding the underlying problem. So once we got that in place, um, it allowed us to really create pipelines and frameworks that allow sustainability, because for us, to Aaron's point, the competition is really just the icing on the cake. Um, you know, the work that we're really passionate about is really bringing this information, this education, the career opportunities to elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, colleges, and universities, so our community can look at gaming the same way we understand hip hop, the same way we understand traditional sports. And so that's exactly like the, the mission of how we're looking to leverage gaming to bring together this collective space. Excellent, how do you follow uh, this up? Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say, you two, uh, Dante, you have, and it's like your history within the gaming space is just profound. Um, give me your, your thoughts on the history. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm kind of the, the old man on the panel. So uh, if you hear me talking about Bo Jackson and Tecmo Bowl, don't hold it against me. There we go. I, I got another great hair gentleman. Yeah, yeah. like, yes, they can relate me. to me. Absolutely. There we go. He said, you're talking my language now. Oh, yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Anybody who knows what Bo Jackson was in that game knows that he was unstoppable. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but just kind of understanding what by many was called nerd culture yeah. or geek culture, but understanding within, within the culture or with people of color, honestly, that was cool culture. You know what I mean? When you were playing Tecmo Bowl or when you were playing some of the other games coming up. So it was interesting how something was perceived in the mainstream, uh, the gaming culture and gaming industry, again, around nerd geek culture, whatever it was called, um, and how it, was, how it was received. I mean, listen, Def Jam, <laughs> the, the record label, created its own game. You know what I mean? So we've, we, we've seen how it's received in the culture and how it's received outside. So much like Ryan kind of spoke towards uh, the community journey and, 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 and what they represent within the space. Our, our mission at eSpat Studios is just to open doors. So we were motivated by Tyler Perry. You know, the, the entire birth of this thing was, if you guys remember at the BET Awards, Tyler Perry was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, and he said, hey, you know, you could either ask for a seat at the table or you can build your own. I'm in Atlanta. I built my own. Come join me. 
that's our model um, as we look to open up doors and kind of brave, uh, you know, kind of tackle a brave new world, um, whether it's around development, whether it's around production and kind of opening up this space, not just with esports, um, but also with gaming as an entire culture. Um, and just helping folks understand that maybe you aren't going to be the next, you know, fill in the blank superstar as an esports athlete, but there's so many opportunities here within the space. And understanding that historically, we've always, as Aaron mentioned, been a part of it, even if the spotlight was not shine what was not shined on these individuals at the time uh, but there are so many opportunities for us to take what we've learned elsewhere and bring it into the gaming space and pave our own road so I've been doing this for a long time and to be able to see people like Aaron you know coming and owning a team um, and owning an organization I guess I should say and kind of leading and, and her being such a, a, a leader within the culture and being able to, to to direct and what Ryan is doing I think that these are great examples of lessons from the past and how they're being executed today to open doors uh, for folks that look like them uh, myself and a lot of the folks in this room and, and and those who are allies to the folks in this room I know one um, thing it has done for me, it has opened up doors. I have been like a deer in headlights in this esports space and just trying to be a sponge and learn as much as I can because like you said, there are so many opportunities for whatever industry that you're in, you can come into the esports industry and do the same exact thing. But what I've always been encouraging other people to do is make sure that once they get inside of this industry, don't just come in the industry and just kind of make your bed and lay down. Start learning about the industry, learning about what it takes to grow this industry and then make sure you're doing your part by encouraging, igniting, and exciting other people to join the industry as well. Um, the introduction of esports, right, has shaken up the industry and it's opened up monetization opportunities in the gaming space to the masses, and I mean to everybody, including me. Um, is there equal representation in participating in, in esports? Dante, you wanna start? Yeah. Oh, sure, uh, no. <laughs> I, knew that, I knew that was yeah, going to be the answer. <laughs> mic drop, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny, we've been having uh, conversations behind the scenes, um, and there are now starting to become interesting shifts mm -hmm. where we can now quantify just the value that the industry is, is placing on people of color. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And we're going to learn right now. It's this moment today. Literally, this is happening um, a lot of you may have seen that there was a shift at the top of the Twitch list mm -hmm. um, who has the most subscribers. Kai now is kind of the king of Twitch with regards to the most subscribers. He's an African-American male. Mm -hmm. Well, let's now see if he starts to receive the opportunities that folks that, you know, may not have, that, that may not look like him were receiving for that exact same position on that exact same platform. So we now have apples to apples comparisons that we will be able to start to look at over the coming months um, and for the remainder of the year to determine, hey, are there, and I know that you asked about esports, and I know I'm, I'm speaking about streamers, but just as a culture as a whole, we get a chance to now, you know, sit two people side by side and have a chance to look and see where the opportunities uh, reside. And I'm hopeful 
prayerful, and I'm going to be very observant <laughs> to see if that's the case. Because if not, then there's, there, there needs to be another conversation with, 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 with one of the bigger brands out there, which is obviously Twitch in this case, but obviously the brands that are supporting mm -hmm. the talent that's on Twitch, um, and why are they not supporting this gentleman in the same way that they have supported others in, in years past. So we're going to have an answer to your question very, very soon in the coming months. We'll be able to see what type of deals Kai is able to strike. Um, and if he's able to strike them, then, you know, we, we give him a standing ovation. But if not, then we all need to come to come back together, have this conversation and make some changes. Oh, yeah. And hold them accountable. I hold think them that's one of the major things that we need to yes. do if it does not happen. Yes. Um, because I feel like sometimes we have a lot of these companies that will come in and they will say they're going to do one thing and they don't do it. And they do another. Or they just say, you know what, we're going to just give you guys a little bit of money yeah. and call the day and go about their business, yeah. not truly invest and not truly be held accountable yeah. for not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, the next question, Ryan, this will be for you. Um, are the opportunities for gamers of color to safely participate and monetize and at what scale? Um, I think, honestly, kind of to Dante's point, right, there's a couple of different perspectives. There's the streaming and content creator route. Um, there's the competitive landscape, which is more where we play alongside content and culture and lifestyle. Um, I think over the past few years, when before we started Community, I could honestly look out and say I really couldn't find a platform in any type of formal sense where there were teams of color competing at the same level for any type of mm. economic advancement, academic opportunities, et cetera. Um, I will say, though, over these last few years, through like our micro tunnel vision of what we're doing um, is all I see now, yeah. right? Like everything that we see is nothing but African-American gamers. One thing I would love to talk about is on February the 25th, we actually did our largest in-person and digital event. Um, it was a, the culmination of a half of a million dollar Call of Duty tournament, which was the largest collegiate tournament ever for white and or black schools. And it was um, amazing. And essentially <laughs> for the last piece of the tournament, we flew in four HBCUs to Metro Atlanta where they competed for the final $200,000. So now you're talking about this team in first place got 80,000. I think it went 80, 60, 40, 20. So every level of participation, these students walked away with a minimum of like 3,500 to $5,000. At the top of the tier, we had four students walk away with close to 60 to $75,000. So we're talking about economic means. And that weekend, it kind of hit me. I was like, yo, I think what we're doing is working. Because literally every student that walked out of this, that walked in and walked out of this room has made more money than I had at that phase <laughs> in my life. So I was like, we have to be doing something correct. I was just going to say, did you say there were college students? That just college made 50, students. Okay. I couldn't imagine that when I was in school. Sorry about that. I so, to make sure I understood that correctly. It's funny on a side note, because I feel now we're kind of responsible also for financial literacy. Like, we're giving away so much money. I think we also have to begin teaching these students, like, yo, you're getting this money. Put it towards your college bill. Don't just yeah. go buy the new Jordans and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, but to that point, it's like what we've noticed and why I bring up the Mountain Dew was not just the, the money or the viewership, but it was our first and our largest in-person event to date. And what was really special was that parents were bringing their students in fifth grade and elementary school. High school students for the first time were seeing all black kids that look like them mm -hmm. playing their favorite games, earning money for Morehouse, for Howard, for Clark, I'm sorry, for um, North Carolina A&T. And I think that was for me the first time I saw the 
future pipeline of what this could look like because parents that were bringing their young students that had future Morehouse man shirt on, <laughs> they're like, hey son, did you now know that you know Morehouse has a gaming league? We look at this differently inside of our household. And I think that is the cognitive connection that we're really looking to drive because playing video games is very straightforward. Mm -hmm. But it's like, how do we build out the pipeline that leads to an actual system that allows our community to advance in a very um, you know, disciplined and, and matriculative way? So that's kind of like how I view this whole thing now. Aaron, the industry as a whole has evolved greatly in the recent decades. Can you break down some of the ways in which people can professionally participate and financially benefit from it? Oh gosh, where do I start? Um, you do, I mean, you are in it. Yeah, like, yeah. It. I mean, what we saw, what, what we've been seeing is, and this is just not in gaming, it's overall in entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, it's no longer just individual-based industries that are just kind of siloed. Yeah. So it's like, gaming's not just gaming, TV's not just TV anymore, music's not just music. It's all together. Uh, I mean, one of the perfect examples we saw is The Last of Us, right? The recent adaptation, which is honestly one of the best adaptations that we've seen recently. That's not a movie. And, you know, there's multiple different ways, right? I think what we're starting to see is that the gaming industry as well as you know esports which is a piece of the pie we're starting to see people take this industry more seriously mm -hmm. understanding that it is a business I mean it is the biggest form of entertainment like there's no doubt about it it's beat TV it's beat film it's beat music it is yeah. the number one form of entertainment so now we're starting to see other areas wanting to tap into it and, and attach itself but what I will say is that of course that is kind of like the, the, the given monetized uh, opportunity and revenue opportunity, but there also are other cultural and entertainment components. So for Exet, for example, one of the things that we've been doing is we are the first gaming organization to have a residency at one of the biggest Vegas nightclubs. So we renovated their VIP rooms and actually do gaming lounges there. We also renovated a gaming lounge at Big Night Live, which is one of the big venues that's, uh, that's connected to uh, the, um, the sporting uh, arena where like the Celtics and them play. So we kind of looked at it as everything is connected to gaming. So you can engage in gaming in so many different facets and areas. So not only is there revenue and monetization opportunities happening in nightlife, which also nightlife in Vegas is one of the, the most profitable <laughs> yeah. cities in terms of that, um, but then also, like for example, we just announced a partnership with the Boston Red Sox. So now we're utilizing gaming as a way for sports fans to engage with the teams beyond just watching a baseball game. And we all know the MLB needs a lot of help when it comes to viewership and numbers with the youth, right? And so now what we're starting to see is intersectionality when it comes to monetizing and revenue opportunities, whether it's on the collegiate front, uh, whether it's in uh, content forms and media forms, um, also when it comes to business opportunities. Uh, you know, one of the things that the kind of the shifts that we've seen as well as even when it comes to games, you know, we talk about esports as kind of like this golden thing that everyone points to, but it's actually a small part of the marketing budget for publishers. And so what publishers now are actually are interested in, and I would say it, this was kind of happening already, but I would say even 2020 helped to expedite it where a lot of the other industries were forced to engage and interact with video games. So we saw like Travis Scott having his concert. We saw, you know, all these other kind of entertainment and cultural components mixed with gaming. And because of that, now the publishers are like, oh, this is another way for us to make more money. So how do we do this? So like, you know, for example, we're working with Epic Games to start integrating more cultural and entertainment activations with video games beyond just like 
player, like people just sitting at their TV and playing video games. Even find ways to bring gaming into culturally relevant events like Coachella. We did that recently with Interscope. Nice. So we're showing multiple different revenue monetizing opportunities that it's not just a competition. It's not just esports. It's showing that gaming it can be consumed. Um, the IP and gaming can be consumed, interact with. In, in multitudes of ways. You don't have to just be at your PC and console to enjoy different components of it. You can enjoy the very music in a game by going to a concert. You can enjoy the, you know, uh, your favorite athlete playing a game and you're watching them. Uh, there's, so there's so many different ways and I think that this is just only the beginning because once we get more VR and AR and other technological advancements, the immersive experience is what's going to Elevate it, and I think that's the key word. Is gaming is immersive, and it's just finding IRL or URL ways to monetize and activate on it. Mm, I love that. So we've already established that, of course, 83% of African American millennials play video games, um, and there's so many ways now to monetize it, right? Um, but what I've been seeing in the industry is an alarming problem that only four percent are actually in the gaming space. Um, so the equality gap is alarming. How did we get here? Well, I'll just say like you can't do what you don't know, specifically mm. what you also can't see. Um, and it's actually pretty interesting. Um, our first activation was May 2020. Um, it was a program called Tech for COVID. Um, essentially what we did, it was a 20 hour live stream and we identified a problem. The, let me take a step back. We identified a problem in Metro Atlanta when Distance learn, learning began. There was a handful of students that went home that had no Wi-Fi and or no laptops to finish school. So our first utilization of gaming was around charity. So we did a 20-hour live stream um, on our Twitch channel that we ended up raising about $100,000 um, over the course of those hours and then used that money to f literally buy laptops and mobile hotspots for students in need in Metro Atlanta. It then dawned on us, it was like, well, would you all want to look into gaming? But they don't know about the academic mm. opportunities and they're only looking at it as a tool of social and recreation. Yeah. So the first thing was like, what type of programs can we create that actually make students aware that there actually are opportunities in this space? And I think that's the underlying question. Yeah. Um, and going back to the first point is like, having lack of access to a computer in your home has a major impact on your future studies and future interests as you enter into high school, into college. So I think one of our first missions was literally getting more people access to product. And so I think now fast forwarding a few years, how we're accelerating that is most recently, similar to Aaron, um, we are really looking at that bridge of culture and lifestyle of gaming and not just competition. So yes, there's the music, but you know, gamers love sneaker culture. Oh, yeah. um, gamers love food. And it's like, how do we create these under the roof experiences? So in October of last year, um, we created a second property called The Kickback. Um, and the way that the kickback is structured, for lack of better words, we rent out a Live Nation venue that can hold like 1,200, 1,500 people. We'll bus in about two to 300 students in the morning, um, and they'll go through a series of panels and workshops, literally from people that are leading in the gaming industry to actually talk about careers. It's so called that from 10 to 12. From one to six, we have a collegiate esports tournament, and then from seven to nine or whatever, we have a concert to close it all out. So in the first version of this, from a music standpoint, we had Pusha T, uh, we had G Herbo, just like some notable names to get the kids excited. Mm -hmm. But then 
after the kickback, we got messages that three of the attending schools then started their gaming programs at their middle schools and at their high school. So it's literally the solution can't be solved until there's actually programs at the individual schools that can then um, coach the students and the teachers. So I'm gonna put you on the spot. The guy right here, Julian, um, behind <laughs> us in the hat. Um, we also Julian. have a 501c3 nonprofit arm that specifically focuses around education. Um, so Julian is the executive director of that group. So we literally will work hand in hand with our nonprofit to make sure that as we're creating these more or less marketing and media experiences, that the students, once they leave, they actually have programs to attend after school on the weekend summer camps um, to actually continue this learning cycle to start shifting that 4% number and increasing it over time. Um, like literally last summer, we created the first esports and video game summer camp with Microsoft in Atlanta, where the kids would show up from you know nine o'clock in the morning, their parents would come at four o'clock in the afternoon, and all day long they're going through courses about different topics and career opportunities within gaming. So I think it's just more of that. Um, one thing that we as community know is like we definitely cannot be the only people in this space doing that type of work to reach the scale that we need at the speed that we need. Yeah. Um, so again, just wanted to touch on that a little bit, but that's why you don't have it because there's literally no programs that are teaching the kids and helping them get pushed through a pipeline as we do in traditional sports that lead to like sports management type careers. So that's like our analogy of how we're kind of building out this platform. And, and I'm gonna add to that as well, and I'm gonna kind of bring it over to the content side, um, not so much live event, which, which, which the XSET team and, and the community team are amazing at. Um, one of the things that we've done is we took moments the pandemic, uh, as, as Aaron mentioned, uh, the Travis Scott and Fortnite, the Little Nas X and Roblox, the Post Malone and Pokemon, um, those dev teams actually came through eSpat Studios. So we actually provided those dev teams for some of those heightened moments uh, during the, the pandemic and beyond. But we know that the music thing, like that, that you know, element of it needs to be transformed a little bit because we've kind of seen it, you know what I mean? So it's like, okay, we've yeah. seen it, that was great, what's next? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll share with, with, with everybody in the room a little bit of what's next, and I know that everybody on this stage is gonna be very familiar with it, but the way that we're executing it is a little different. Formula One did a great job in 2022 in Miami. Mm -hmm. Um, the live event, the race down there. I'm not even a Formula One guy, but I had a ball down there. It was absolutely amazing. Um, one of the things that they said and kind of, you know, kind of following up on what Mark Zuckerberg said is he said, hey, the next generation of content, the metaverse is going to be led by gamers. Um, he understood that because he understood the fidelity that we're used to. We look at the metaverse and we're like, this looks like Atari back in 1997. Like, this is yeah. not what we're even accustomed to in our video game. Well, one of the things that Formula One said is, hey, we want to create something that lives digitally, almost in a metaverse, but from a gamer's perspective. And you guys will laugh about this. We literally took Sim, <laughs> which Sim is simulated racing. Mm -hmm. We took Sim, and what we know as gamers is Sim, and we actually took that over to Formula One and said, hey, we can give you a 360 immersive experience. Yeah. We have this already. This is what we can create for you. They have a race at the end of this year in November, and it's gonna be the first race that they've ever done in the metaverse. We're actually producing that. Nice. So that's, and, and just to answer your 4% question, 50% of the developers on that project are African-American. Mm -hmm. So when you ask, what can we do? Sometimes we just simply have to do. Just do. You know I mean, yeah. there's not necessarily yeah. a roadmap to this. It's how committed are we and folks that care about the things that we care about and folks that are willing to support it. And sometimes it's just taking that first step. 
And we decided that our major first step was to have our first uh, dev team that was 50% African-American. Um, and just to add to that, there's another 20% uh, that's people of color. You know what I mean? So we've got, you know, and that's what's going to be behind Formula One's first ever um, foray into the metaverse uh, is a majority people of color crew and just kind of bringing this to life at the end of the year. Yeah, and I love how you bring up simulation because what, we're, what we've also noticed is that simulation doesn't take away from live events. It only elevates the experience for individuals when it comes to live events. Um, and we also even, like for us, we have a eNASCAR pro, uh, pro players, and we actually even seen some people who started with doing uh, NASCAR simulation ended up then becoming real NASCAR drivers from that experience. So that, just wanted to add that point. But um, another thing, too, is you know how we can help and where does it start with? Um, I'm going to talk about it from more of an executive and business perspective. So uh, part of it is, you know, one of the ways that we can is, like, for some of the, the gaming companies or just companies in general, it starts with ownership, right? Um, for Xset, over 50% of our owners are people of color. And so if we want to get more people to buy in, if we want more, more people to come in and invest, one of the ways that we can get them to come in is from, you know, ownership perspective. And not that many gaming companies have even close to 50% of their owners being people of color, to be very honest. Yeah. And then uh, another thing, too, is whenever we talk about D&I, um, this is a mistake that I see with a lot of executives, and this is just based off of conversations I've had internally, is a lot of them view just the diversity side of things. Um, and obviously, diversity is various different groups from various different backgrounds. It can be regionally, it can be ethnic-wise, gender-wise, age-wise, and so forth, right? But the problem is, you can tap in and, and get those, all those people, but if you don't create that company culture to retain them, then it means nothing. And that's why I always tell people, if we're talking about DE&I or DNI, the I is actually the most important part. Yes. Um, and what inclusivity means, it's not just like, hey, I'm gonna bring these people to the table. Inclusivity actually means everyday actions that create psychological safety and environments where people can feel like themselves and also be honest. Mm -hmm. And what we've actually seen by studies is that when people create those environments, you actually are increasing more engagement with your employees. So most companies, when we look at engaged employees, right, they actually, the studies show only 10 to 15% of your employees are actively engaged. You have to take an effort and initiative to increasingly increasingly engage them and then um, there's a study from Cornell that shows like up to only 20 to 25 executives and C-suite people are actually engaged um, and when you're having that when you increase that engagement and you create you create these psychological safety measures these environments where people have the resources that they need to do their job where they're not burnt out um, and opportunities and, and space for them to be themselves you actually, companies that do that um, actually would see over a 20% increase in profit. And you know, one example that I can show by having an engaged uh, environment from executives, the former CEO of Campbell's Soup. Campbell's Soup actually used to be, not too long ago, a pretty failing company. Um, even the, the culture within the company was really, really bad. And uh, the, the former CEO came in and he took initiatives to be much more engaged with his employees. Even the basic things of writing 10 notes to his employees every single day, um, recognizing their efforts. And uh, of course there was more because one of, his, uh, one of his main philosophies was to listen, to advance, and to act. So like you listen, you determine what the problem is, and then you set the course, uh, course of action. 
And when he did that, and obviously with other elements, he turned the company around and it made it to one a uh, very profitable and, and higher uh, Fortune 500 company. And so it shows that inclusivity, it really starts with the higher ups in the C-suites and the executives. But it's also important that you're instilling certain elements uh, within your company that encourages everyone from a managerial perspective or even just uh, new staff to uphold those uh, standards. And it can be big kind of initiatives or even smaller ones. So like for one example, at Exit, one of the rules that we implemented to increase engagement and also uh, help and support inclusivity is we actually have a no interruption policy. You cannot interrupt anyone in any meeting. Doesn't matter if you have a thought right then, guess what, there's pen and paper, you can write it down. <laughs> we do that on purpose because typically there are certain personalities and, there's, and also typically CEOs and executives are more prone to speak over people uh, versus you know new staff members and junior staff members. So we wanted to create an environment where the junior staff members can feel heard, and if they feel heard, that makes them feel more a part of the solution, a more part of the company. Um, we've also implemented, for example, to have our creators feel heard more. We created actual like an internal committee with our creators. So now our creators tell us like what they like, what they don't like, what we can possibly change. We also created this uh, communication channel with uh, talent who are part of our company because then they can ask, oh, well, why are we making this direction from business move? Why are we changing our Instagram? And we explain it to them because we want them to understand the business side of things and we want to have them understand why we're doing the things that we're doing and what we need from them. And so, you know, these are just some elements that you can do, even creating like a form, right? There's some people in companies that are afraid to speak up, but they're more likely to write or send a message to someone. So there's, there's certain elements that you have to do and it takes effort and it takes works and it also takes changing your policies and your standards that will help with the retention of people of color, retention of, of so many different individuals. But it starts from the, from the top up and they don't have to fully understand, right? Like to be transparent, I don't expect a cis white man in his 60s to know <laughs> what it means to be a person of color. I just need you to, to be open to listening mm -hmm. and to understanding why it's so important to have these specific policies and standards. So um, that's what we do at Exet, and that's something that I try to work with other companies on as well. And earlier we were having a conversation before this panel about how, what was the percentage you told me earlier? Um, about how the, the more that companies are diverse, the better they are in sales, uh, it, or the better the company uh, yeah, is doing. Yeah, they could see about a 20% increase in profit. See, if you're about the money, you got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right now, how do you think there is, um, the industry sees the, the, the closing gap of equality, do you think they see it as a priority, or is it just one of those things to where it's like, you know what, we'll get to it? Or do you think they're just all right, we need to do it now. I think definitely a few years ago, there was like a huge impetus, especially when every other headline was about HBCUs and mm -hmm. diversity, et cetera. Um, we've definitely seen um, a different tone. It's toned down a little bit. But I would definitely say one of the largest opportunities for business just in the world is the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. And no one is actually paying attention to that, which is like mind boggling um, to like us. But we've actually made some very strategic relationships in Africa with some of the leading gaming groups. One as an example that comes to mind, they founded literally about a year and a half ago. 
Um, within about six months, they went from zero to 200,000 users on their platform. Wow. Um, and now we're looking at doing strategic partnerships and investments in their platform as we're trying to do HBCU esports, create bridge programs so kids in Africa can now play games in esports in North America, in North America, vice versa, et cetera. Um, but what I want to say is like, I meant to say this in the last part, the last question. I think one of the biggest struggles within gaming and diversity um, is actually sometimes on our side of the table when it comes to black people have to get over the stigma of not being in nerd culture. Mm. When we're even talking about these esports programs at these schools, I'm not talking about the student athletes. I'm not talking about <laughs> the kids that have all the coolest shoes yeah. and like the whatever. We're talking about kids that are already in line with computer science and STEM, and they may not participate in any type of social mm -hmm. club, but esports was the thing where they feel safe and they feel yeah. at home. I think we're going to start to see a gradual shift in that as an example. Um, as I mentioned, Julian and team, we just built the eSports lab at Washington High School in Atlanta. One of the most notable alumni from Washington High School is Little Baby. Yeah. So it's like, how do you now bridge that gap between Little Baby and his fan base and the kids at Washington that are on that side of the mm -hmm. fence, and then now bring them into the computer lab? And now you basically have the one person yeah. that everyone listens to saying, like, nah, these kids is actually really cool. Yeah. And I think once that adoption begins, you'll start to see a, an excessive and exponential increase. But even right now, still, there is a lot of that neg negative stigma because mm -hmm. no fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grader wants to be called the nerd the in the nerd. cafeteria because they're on the gaming team, per yeah. se. So that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges within this. But we're talking like beyond policy and beyond marketing budgets. I'm like, if in fact these kids join in force, you're kind of forced to shift your attention because there's going to be an entirely new conversation that's going on that currently hasn't been had. Um, so again, I look at that and I'll just boil my answer down to yes, because Africa is it. Yeah, and also to even add to it, so I'm, a, I'm an Afro-Latina and like Latin America is still such an untapped area, especially when we look at Afro-Latinos as a whole. And it's actually, you know, along with the black community, Hispanic uh, community, actually in terms of demographics, they actually identify themselves more with being gamer than even some black communities. And that, those, uh, that was a survey done with HispanicGamers.com. And so, you know, there's so much areas in addition to Africa that we can tap into. Another thing, too, that, that we would have to do, kind of going off of what you said, because little baby is something that triggered for me, was that those of us who work at these companies and those of us that work at these brands have to work with those in these companies to redefine what brand safe means. Yeah. Because currently, the standard of brand safe basically does not support like socioeconomic <laughs> talent of lower status mm -hmm. because of the way that they communicate, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's our job to have, you know, try to work with these brands and have them understand that, like, when you say brand safe, you have to specify it a lot more because there are some individuals who, for example, maybe they went to jail when they were younger and then they found their new, new life through gaming. So why should they not get the same opportunities because they made a mistake when they were younger? Um, there's some individuals that, you know, had to do things to get by, but that doesn't mean that that's the same person they are now. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's also part of our responsibility is to work with people individually to let them understand the cultural nuances of what it means to be brand safe, right? A lot of black gamers, they may curse, but that's part of the, 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 mm -hmm. the communication. And then, 
Don't even get me started on the AAVE, right? Yeah. And that's a whole other aspect that they don't understand, that they may deem not brand safe, but in actuality, it is brand safe. It's just the way that the community communicates. And so I think part of it is that we're going to have to educate and, and really have them understand and clearly define what brand safe means because right now the current standards of brand safety and brand safe, it caters to certain individuals mm -hmm. but not now everyone else. And to, to Aaron, I just want to quickly add in because you mentioned Kai earlier, right? And yes. we talked about it upstairs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talk about brand safety. I think a lot of it is how do they talk, how do they post online, but also it is like physical appearance, what right? They Look exactly. like. And yep. so yeah. one of the things we were saying upstairs is very interesting to me how we, we have a very great relationship with Offset from um, formerly, I guess, the Migos, yeah. right? But Offset, nonetheless, we try and bring him into a lot of our um, opportunities, streams, and a lot of times he's actually turned away for a number of different reasons that they will tell to us. But you'll flip the script and Post Malone, whose literally entire face is tattooed, <laughs> will be on a campaign in Target. He'll be on a campaign <laughs> in these other places. So and true. these same opportunities are not afforded to people with darker skin tone with the same type of physical physique. So I'm very intentional and like mindful of those type of things, especially as we're, like, we're building and growing in this space. But I think a lot of the conversations to Aaron's point is brand safety is built on a certain culture. If you're not understanding and willing to understand other cultures, your limits of safety are gonna be very, very, very narrow, very narrow. And I mean, I, you know, I, I think just kind of wrapping it up with, with, with what both, uh, both Aaron and, and Ryan have said, it's accountability and it's let's move beyond the posting of the black square. You know what I mean? On, on Instagram, and then one year later, no one's actually done anything. Yeah, um, we've got to move past the symbolism of support and actually start to move into the phase of the action of support and what that actually looks like and having more than just the support during Black History Month. Come on. You know now. what I mean? Say having that. the support for all 12 months. Um, and that's where it becomes different um, or, or a separation between just throwing dollars at a community and actually supporting that community. I mean, and, you could throw dollars at this community. Well, there you go, exactly. exactly. <laughs> community with the X, community with the X, exactly. But, you know, just kind of understanding what support of folks that are looking to create a change um, and what support that opens doors for the next generation mm -hmm. looks like. I think that that's where true change starts to happen. We start to see allies that are like, okay, we support what, what these folks stand for. Let's find a way to help drive their missions forward. Um, I, I think that that's key to, you know, kind of seeing change in, in, in this space. And I just want to say, so like, I think a really interesting call out, I just, I literally just thought about this like the first time. The 4% number doesn't necessarily have to just happen by getting more black people working at existing companies. New companies can also be created yes. that are majority or the new majority as we call it that would also increase that number. And the thing that came to mind is as we started the league, the first year again we had about 15, 16 kids. Um, Mike, keep me honest, we may have upwards of 130 to 150-ish kids that play within the league now. What I'm starting to notice is that kids in our league are starting their companies with mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. And there's these new wave of management companies within gaming, production companies within gaming. We have a kid at North Carolina A&T that started a game design studio on campus and he's working with other computer science majors and they're working on mobile video games. So my focus is like literally shifted to then say like, Again, how do I now help direct dollars to these students? Again, they may be a little mature, a little, uh, premature now, but 
within gaming, how do we create an accelerator program that helps accelerate these kids' ideas and connects them with the exit? So now this kid who's in North Durham, North Carolina, he has an official partnership with one of the largest esports teams in North America. And it's like really creating the shortcuts for ourselves that didn't exist um, previously. So I just wanted to call that out like, because I think even my focus was like, yo, how do I get this kid to work at EA or work at 2K? I was like, well, why don't we just start new companies? Yeah. And that same number will continue to increase and rise. And and I'll, I'll tell you guys a little behind the scenes. Uh, the young lady that's sitting there remembers this story as well. Um, you guys may have seen on social media, um, there was a guy who created artificial intelligence, and it was of elderly African men and women, and they were kind of doing a fashion show. Mm. Did you guys see that? His name's Malik. He's from Nigeria. It was amazing. It was, he, he kind of recreated a fashion show using AI, and it was all elderly people. Um, so they looked amazing, first of all. Uh, but it, it wasn't real people. He created these people. I saw his work, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and literally reached out to him. So I, so I, I slid in his DMs for business purposes. <laughs> so, so, so I reached out to him, and he responded. Um, we're now working with him with Disney. This was literally somebody from social media. So if you see the talent out there, and if there are now opportunities that you are bringing to the table, or even just communication, he had his own company. He was award-winning in Nigeria. He just didn't have access to Disney. We did. And we were like, listen, we want to bring you in. We want to work with you. Amazing young man, incredibly talented. The things that he's doing now is just next level. Um, and, you know, that's an example of if you see him, if you see her, and if you want to bring him in, go get him. You know what I mean? Or if you have an idea that maybe, hey, maybe you should connect with this person and this person and start your own, as Ryan just mentioned. There's talent out there. We've just got to, we've got to get them and discuss opportunity, whether we're offering them opportunity or even giving them concept and idea for opportunity in the gaming space. He's not a gamer. He doesn't game at all. But he's here now, <laughs> and, and we're, we're going to be rocking with him. So if, if you happen to see his stuff, he's a really good guy. Please support. But that's an example of just finding somebody off of social media on another continent that we didn't know, um, and, and he's now you know, working with us. So that's an example. I think the goal is, like you said, is to make sure that we are connecting. I like yes. to say uh, support is a verb. It's action. It's what you do, right? Um, and I'm so glad that we had a chance to have this amazing conversation. Any lasting remarks for you guys? I'll just quickly say, like, for us, this panel is very special. Um, literally, I, when we kind of went through, like, who we wanted to be a part of it, like, going from right to left, Christina worked with us when we didn't really have any money at all to bring on talent, right? And she was willing to lend her voice as one of the leading women in basketball, social media, you know, specifically based in Atlanta. So that was awesome. Erin, when she was at Cheddar News years ago, <laughs> gave us our first interview on any type of TV platform, asked community to tell our story. And Dante has been a mentor, big brother, introducing oh, me to any and everybody within his board of directors, et cetera. So when we put this together, um, for no pun intended, we wanted to bring together like our original community that actually allowed us to have this type of opportunity to be at South by Southwest. So again, for us, when we started this three years ago, I had no idea where we were gonna go. I had no idea the type of opportunities and impact that we would have. But just to say like in three years, you know, we've helped create over 30 gaming clubs at HBCUs. We provided over a million five dollars worth of scholarships. 60% 60 of our students are in internships and job. It's just like phenomenal. So I'm like just really excited and literally everybody up here has played a significant part part and role um, in the growth. So thank you all. That's all I had to say. Thank you. That wasn't the end though. That wasn't the I end. Know, that was just fine. <laughs>
Um, Would you, any last remarks, Aaron? Yeah, I, I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it, it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not easy at all. I mean, you know, guys, I have no idea how often I get so stressed out in meetings with people <laughs> who aren't quite grasping it, but it's so important. Um, and the reason why it's so important, I mean, one, for those who may not look at it from a moral perspective, it makes money. Mm -hmm. uh, but two, gaming is universal. So why aren't there more universal components of it? If gaming can be played on any continent, in any country, in any language, then why aren't we having more rep people representing those specific areas in the industry? And so it's so important that we have the, the industry as a whole reflect the very world that we live in, which is a very interconnected, connected, um, uh, multicultural environment. And, you know, gaming is getting to the point where you can play video games anywhere, at any time, on any platform. So it's already moving away from exclusivity into inclusivity as an industry. So in order to do that, we need to include more individuals who understand different aspects, different countries, different things to make the, comp to make the industry even more profitable. So uh, I'm hoping that everyone in here, when you're having these kind of conversations, trust me, I get just as frustrated as probably you do, but it's ultimately worth it and it's ultimately gonna be very beneficial for the gaming industry as a whole. Awesome, awesome. Um, before I start, Erin was our first interview, too, so that's why she's just an all-around rock star. She was absolutely our first interview. She, she, she gave us our first, uh, our first interview, so that's why we all love Erin. Um, I believe in MTMs, right? MTMs, moments that matter. Mm -hmm. So we may be in a room with two folks that don't know each other right now that may, be, that may meet you know, through this moment that may become business partners. You know what I mean? That, that may become supporters of, you know, some of the missions and some of the journeys that we're all on individually in this room. Uh, so I think that if I were going to leave, you know, just a lasting statement or a final statement, I applaud everybody on this stage for what they're doing for the community. Um, but even more than that, I look forward to seeing some of your faces and remembering, hey, I remember you from South By, you know, and see what you guys are doing in a year from now. Um, and, and just kind of, you know, identifying your race, uh, your journey um, in, in this race, I guess I should say, and just hoping that we're a small part of it, um, you know, just from our conversation today. So I look forward to all of that. And I would also say just keep an eye on everybody on the stage because they're doing amazing things. Um, but more importantly, we thank you for your time. Uh, they say that's the most valuable thing that we have is time. So thank you for spending your time today with us. So I guess I will say Aaron was my first too. Wow. <laughs> you were my first. <laughs> my first gaming panel was at Revolt Summit last yeah. year, and you were my first. So wow. you were just the first. <laughs> but let me say I am honored to share this stage with so many amazing people like you guys who have pushed the culture forward and continue to push the culture forward. And I'm also grateful um, to community and to Ryan. I know we play basketball together, but for giving me an opportunity to come into this space into the world of gaming to share my talents. And I also tell people, I am not a gamer. I can play, I will beat you up in Mortal Kombat. I'm learning Apex Legend, and you can't see me in NBA 2K. Um, but I have came in this industry, and I have been just so shocked at how I'm able to just be my authentic self and have so many people around me, like a community, 
slash East community um, that inspired me to be myself in this space when a lot of people have that stigma like you were talking about, you're a nerd or you're this, but you can actually come in this space and be whoever you want to be. And that's the beautiful thing about it. So whether you're a gamer or not, there's so much room for you. If you are a hairstylist, if you are a makeup artist, if you are a production assistant, if you are a producer, writer, if you are a lawyer, we need all of that in this space. But come into the space, understand the culture, and understand you have to put in the work and you have to work together. We can accomplish so much more when we work together. So I'm so grateful to share this stage with you guys. I'm so excited that you guys have... Um, decide to come and enjoy this, this panel and be here and listen to us. What we will do now, really quick, I'll take two questions. We have time for two questions. So if you would like to have a question, just take that mic right there. Say your name, your company, and ask your question. Hi, everyone. So first of all, thank you so much today. This was awesome. It was amazing. My name is Nate Castro. I'm Latino. I'm a founder. I'm building a Web3. Yes. Um, so really excited to hear about what you guys are doing. Um, Web3 and gaming and blockchain I think is revolutionary. It's another industry that's being built that needs diversity. Um, being a founder, obviously, I wanna hire diverse, I'm gonna hire diverse as a part of the DNA of our company. Um, we're building a, an infrastructure and kind of marketplace um, to what we call power the gaming ownership economy. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big deal going forward, the ability for a marketplace to be able to buy and sell virtual in-game assets. But again, this is new technology, it's a new industry, and in the very beginning stages of new industries, it's typically white men, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd like to get your point of view on what you think about blockchain and gaming, obviously, because that's what I'm doing. Um, and I think it could be a big deal in esports. Uh, I think it's gonna be a big deal in everything. I think it's gonna be a multi-trillion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. But also kind of future-proofing diversity in this new technology and this new world and this new meta-economics. So thank you. Yeah, I, I think Web3, you know, I, I think when we talk about Web3, there's still a lot of more of educational component that has to happen with it. Um, because, you know, I, I, I've, been, I've been in a lot of Web3 conversations and like know people from gaming who've gone into the Web3 side of things. I think part of the, the educational component is educating people in the Web3 about how the gaming industry is and how it functions, right? Especially if they're going to be implementing blockchain and, you know, other things that come with ownership of skins, having them understand how do those things actually come about in the gaming industry. Um, and then also on the other end, there is kind of a, a stigma that needs to be dispelled in education of the technological uh, aspects and advancements within Web3 on the gaming side, you know, because NFTs are like a no-no for gamers. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, personally for me, I think where we are with NFTs and that thing and that aspect, I think it's still so much that needs to get done, um, not even from an educational standpoint. I understand the technology, but even for me sometimes I'm like, I don't think gamers are going to really care about that too much. Um, and then, you know, uh, another part of it too is in order for Web3 and blockchain and gaming to advance, they're going to have to first create video games that people actually want to play. Like the Web3 component cannot be the first part of it. It has to be a fun and immersive game. Mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of Web3 people forget is like, Web3 and blockchain, all that is going to be secondary or even third to the actual overall fun and immersive experience that people want to get from playing video games. And then another component, too, is they're going to have to figure out, like the educational point, 
Gaming as a whole, if you look at the industry, the publishers own everything. They own everything from IP, they own everything from skins and et cetera. They literally control the industry. So not only are you having to do the educational point of it, but you're also gonna have to create a game that's gonna be going up against the likes of a Riot Games video game, an Activision Blizzard games that have had decades upon decades of community building. And so, you know, with Web3, I, I think that as long as they're focusing on creating those games that are of, are of value and, and focusing on creating community and giving value to the community, it's gonna be a progressive growth paired with the education. I don't really see any Web3 game really coming in and like throwing off any of these AAA titles. Yeah, but the thing is, is like you're battling. Yeah, yeah, no, but, but the thing is, is like Web3, you guys are competing not only with the AAA titles, you're also competing with every single form of entertainment. So it's not just those games that you're competing with. So it's gonna be so important to focus on those elements that provide value to gamers that make people like, yeah, they may play Call of Duty, but they're also interested in playing this other game as well. Yeah, go and and I, I so. think that, uh, I'm gonna to add to that, um, Aaron's absolutely right. Your focus should be, you know, the immersiveness of the game. You know what I mean? To just get a community, a flock, a following, a support group of the game title. I mean, we've all seen the cyberpunks in the world mm -hmm. that kind of came along and just fell flat because the work around the game, the product itself, everything went into the promotion. We did the promotion for that, so that was awesome, but the game <laughs> itself was terrible. Uh, yeah, the promotion was great though. Everybody loved the promotion, so. But, but nonetheless, I do think also it's leaning into an element that you have that the industry does want, which is the radical transparency mm -hmm. uh, with regards to the economics, and that's your blockchain element. Um, you know what I mean? So if there's gonna be smart contracts living around that, or if it's just gonna literally just be a radical transparency of now you can see everybody that's living on the ledger, everything that is, is kind of has a true exposure, if that's the, your use of blockchain around, the, around your game, that's something that the industry desperately wants, right? I mean, we know that, you know, from a content creator's perspective, they, you know, no offense YouTube, but they hate YouTube. You know, just yeah. from the economics of it, you know what I mean? Just not having the visibility of, wow, these, you know, these CPMs are terrible. These, you know, th there's, there's an opportunity there for you to step in and, and, and have more of an equitable relationship uh, with those that are, in, are involved with your game title. Um, so that's something to think about, but I would let most of my focus be the game itself and building the community and network around that game. So thank you so very much for you guys um, being here in this amazing panel, the Future Proofing in Diversity Gaming panel. I am so glad you guys came. If you all would like to, uh, if you have any questions or any comments, we're going to have to take those outside because it is the end of our panel. But thank you all so much for coming. Please make sure you connect with somebody. Do not leave this conference nor this space without meeting at least three people. We can do so much together when we decide to work together. So remember, support is a verb, is what you do. So make sure you guys connect with somebody, meet somebody new. Um, and thank you all for coming to this panel. Thank you.